Hello and welcome to welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host Matthew Arnold, and the confusion stops here. Today we're going to spend most of the show confronting a powerful example of Catholic kryptonite, perhaps second only to the Spanish Inquisition. I am talking, of course, about the Crusades. We'll be exposing a lot of the willful nonsense that still surrounds what's really what's really a a glorious episode in the history of Christendom. But first, I wanted to say a word about conscience. I think it's particularly significant to you and, and me at a time when so many of us are deprived of the sacrament of confession. Ever since Vatican II, we've heard a lot about the primacy of conscience, which is to, is to say, I mean, properly so-called, to, to, that you must never violate your conscience, which is fine. But some theologians, even clergy, have taken it to mean that, that it is licit, uh, sometimes even moral, to violate the laws of the Church, say, regarding contraception, so long as you can do so in quote-unquote good, good conscience, which, of course, is nonsense. Hence today's installment of Will the Real Vatican II Please Stand Up? Does your personal conscience trump the Ten Commandments? And what does Vatican II really say? Well, according to Dignitatis Humanae number 3, and I quote, the highest norm of human law, or human life, rather, is the divine law, eternal, objective, and universal whereby God orders, directs, and governs the entire universe and all the ways of the human community by a plan conceived in wisdom and love. Human beings have been made by God to participate in this law with the result that under the gentle disposition of divine providence, they can come to perceive ever more fully the truth that is unchanging. And this from Intermerifica number six, Quote, the council proclaims that all must hold to the absolute primacy of the objective moral order. That is, this order by itself surpasses and fittingly coordinates all other spheres of human affairs. For human beings who are endowed by God with the gift of reason and summoned to pursue a lofty destiny are alone affected by the moral order in their entire being. And likewise, if human beings resolutely and faithfully uphold this order, they will be brought to the attainment of complete perfection and happiness, unquote. So what does all of that mean? It means, according to Vatican II, if you want to be happy and rational and fully human, which includes going to heaven, you must obey the law of God. Furthermore, the Council says the truth doesn't change, the tr Church's traditional teaching has not changed, the law of God is the highest norm by which Catholics must govern our lives. And I, I don't think this can be overemphasized in uh, today's world, where so many conflicts uh, between virtue and vice plague our Western culture. You know, moral questions are a matter of constant debate in our society. As, as Catholics who enjoy the right to vote, we have an obligation to exercise that right and support candidates uh, of Christian principles. Because, and this has often been stated by conservative commentators, you know, certainly over the 20-some-odd years that I've been Catholics, they often say that U.S. Catholics could change the course of our country in the direction of Christian virtue in a single generation if we would just vote exclusively for pro-life and pro-family candidates. You know, what they're requesting, in essence, is that Catholics should vote their conscience. And the trouble is that Catholic voters who gave us the likes of Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, or Pelosi do vote their conscience. You know, their conscience is precisely the problem. 
Uh, and, and so what is it? Well, conscience is uh, sometimes called the voice of God because it reflects the, the moral law, the law that St. Paul says is written on the heart. Conscience is nothing more or less than human reason exercising its natural function of distinguishing between good and evil. Like St. Paul admonished the Romans, uh, he said, no one with the use of reason can be ignorant of basic moral precepts. Uh, for example, that stealing is wrong and, and to love and respect your parents is morally good. Long before Moses came down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments, uh, Cain knew very well that he had done evil when he murdered his brother Abel. Vatican II, once again, in Gaudium et Spes, number 16, it says, in the depths of their conscience, human beings detect a law that they do not impose upon themselves, but which holds them to obedience. In a wonderful manner, conscience reveals that law which is fulfilled by love of God and neighbor. Hence, the more right conscience, this is important, the more right conscience holds sway, the more persons and groups turn away from blind choice and strive to be guided by the objective norms of morality. Conscience frequently errs from invincible ignorance without losing its dignity. The same cannot be said for a person who cares little for truth or goodness or for a conscience which by degrees grows practically, practically sightless as a result of habitual sin. Okay, let's unpack that. Catholics must never violate their conscience, hence the primacy of conscience. That's where that comes from. But for Catholics to fruitfully follow our conscience, if you're going to let your conscience be your guide, it has to be a well-formed conscience. Now, obviously, morality doesn't change. But the problem is that our conscience is fallible and can be mistaken. And that means that we have an ongoing obligation to conform our conscience to the moral law of God. So you would have an erroneous conscience if you think something that's wrong is right, or if you think something that's right is wrong. And that comes from ignorance or a faulty understanding of God's law. And this is where primacy of conscience comes in. If you have a faulty conscience, and I mean to say, if through no fault of your own, you really don't know any better, then you're not responsible, you're not culpable for the evil that you do by following your conscience. So let's, as an example, a classic example would be a child who lies to save his little sister from being punished because he feels it his, it's his duty to protect his sister, and he thinks that's more important than his duty to tell the truth. So he has an erroneous conscience, and therefore he's not committing a sin. Now, on the other hand, if you think something that is right is really wrong, and you do it anyway, then you are guilty of sin. Because even though the thing that you did wasn't really wrong, you willed to do something that you thought was wrong, and thereby violated your conscience. So in both cases, you can see why we have the obligation to strive for correct knowledge by studying religion. And that's why St. John Paul II said that catechesis is for everyone, even for the elderly and not just for children. Because conscience may be God's voice within us, but that voice is often drowned out by other voices. The voices of the world and the flesh and the devil. And it's only by having a well-formed conscience that we can be sure that the voice that we hear is really God's voice. Dignitatis Humani, number eight, Vatican II again says, and I quote, many pressures are brought to bear upon the people of our day to the point where the danger arises lest they lose the possibility of acting on their own judgment. 
On the other hand, not a few can be found who seem inclined to use the name of freedom as a pretext for refusing to submit to authority and for making light of the duty of obedience, unquote. So, if we dissent from Catholic teaching on faith and morals, if we never study Catholic doctrine, if we never listen to a homily, never engage in prayer, never do any spiritual reading, then our conscience becomes a faithless and deceitful voice. It becomes, in our Lord's words, a blind guide, a dead member of, of, of uh, the body, right? It's like when a Catholic says, I'm following my conscience, um, that often means he's just yielding to his own disordered desires. And, then, and that's the blind leading the blind. Because for all practical purpose, uh, purposes, such a conscience is dead. Just like a Catholic in mortal sin uh, remains a Catholic, but is a dead member of the body of Christ. So Catholics that, that flaunt the teaching of the Church, Catholics who refuse obedience to lawful authority in matters of faith and morals, and who encourage others to do the same, are not acting in good conscience. You know, we live in a world where access to the true teaching of the Church is more easily available, more accessible than ever before in history. Not only the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but the uh, Compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the Baltimore Catechism, and the Catechism of the Council of Trent. All of these things are available online for free, in English, as is the Holy Bible in several translations, from the classic Dewey Reims all the way up to the New American Bible and, and everything in between. Not to mention the documents of Vatican II, which I still think that a vast majority of Catholics have never read, uh, as, as well as all of the significant documents of the Church Councils going all the way back to uh, the beginning of the Church. No Catholic who attains a high office in the Church or the world, uh, you know, in politics or the academy or, or the professions, none of them can uh, uh, authentically plead invincible ignorance. You know, when a Catholic leader willfully misrepresents church teaching or appeals to conscience when defying the law of God, he or she is not ignorant. They're not an ignoramus. They're a spiritual zombie. It, it's it's the, the, the dead leading the blind. And that is no nonsense. Okay, um, I just had to get that off my chest. We're going to be talking about the Crusades today when we return. And I wanted to take a moment uh, before we take our break to let you know that tomorrow we are going to have at 12 o'clock uh, Pacific time a, a pre-premiere, if you will, of Understanding Divine Mercy. Father Chris Alar is going to be at the uh, uh, National Shrine of the Divine Mercy, and they're going to pray the chaplet. They're going to have benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. They are going to uh, have a special, offer special prayers for the upcoming program, and then the following Thursday, a week from tomorrow, we'll have our very first episode, our very first broadcast of Understanding Divine Mercy. So I invite you to tune in tomorrow. This is the first time we've ever done anything like this. I'm very much looking forward to it myself. And of course, stay with us, because we'll be right back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic talking about the Crusades when we return right after these messages.
Welcome, Daniel. You're on the line. What's on your mind, brother? Hi, I just wanted to share a testimony about Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I had a buddy at work who, you know, he's a lukewarm Catholic guy, and I wanted him to start listening to the Terry and Jesse show, so I kept telling him to download the app, and he kept putting me off. So one day, I grabbed his phone, and I downloaded the app <laughs> for him. I went on vacation, and you know, I kept telling him to listen to it. He was kind of put me off. I came back from vacation. He comes to my cubicle, and he says to me, Hey, man, I've been listening to Terry and Jesse's show, and it's great. And it's uh, made a big impact in his life. The guy, he's going to weekly adoration a couple times a wow. week. He goes to the Mass in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an on-fire Catholic, and he promotes the Terry and Jesse show on the Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Daniel, what a testimony, and I want to encourage our listeners to get those cards by going to virginmostpowerfulradio.org and uh, do what Daniel's doing. Go out and spread the faith by inviting people to listen to Virgin Most Powerful. Daniel, thanks for your testimony, brother. God love you. You're welcome. Jesus said in Luke 17, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have only done our duty. According to St. John of the Cross, God is pleased with the little deeds we do in secret. He takes more pleasure in these than in a multitude of grand works that we may do out of the desire to be seen by others. May God help us to do the things that please Him, and not just to appear great in the eyes of others. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold, and this is your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. Uh, a little different on this week's No Nonsense Catholic. We usually do several segments and several different topics. Today we are going to focus on um, a particularly virulent uh, kind of Catholic kryptonite, which concerns an episode of Catholic history that suffers from an excessive amount of nonsense, and that is the Crusades. The Crusaders are, are routinely portrayed as unprovoked aggressors, uh, greedy pillagers, medieval colonialists, all of which is absolute nonsense. The Crusades were not wars of conquest, they were were in fact defensive wars. Furthermore, the Crusades were not, or the Crusaders weren't religious fanatics on the one hand, or or greedy opportunists on the other, because there was frankly no profit um, in the Crusades materially. They didn't profit uh, in you know the uh, either earthly treasure or even in converts to the Catholic faith. Now, I've been an armchair medievalist for something like forty years, and one of the best things about being a medievalist these days is that as a Catholic. It puts me in touch uh, with the fact that secular scholarship is really dispelling a lot of the myths that have surrounded the Crusades and the Middle Ages in general for generations. So on today's program, we're going to take a no-nonsense look at the holy wars of the Middle Ages and discover the truth about the Crusades. 
Now, one of the first objections is that the Crusades were wars of unprovoked aggression against a peaceful Muslim world. Those, those mean Christians went to the Middle East and just started uh, taking stuff away from the poor Muslims who were just minding their own business. Well, this is exactly backwards. From the time of Muhammad himself, Islam was spread by the sword. From the very beginning, Muslims sought to conquer the Christian world. And after centuries of, of steady conquests, Muslim armies had taken all of North Africa, the Middle East, Asia Minor, most of Spain. Uh, in the 8th century, they even threatened France, although they were repelled by Charles Martel, who was the son of Charlemagne at the Battle of Tours in the year 732. The point is that by the end of the 11th century, in the 1090s, Muslim armies had captured fully two-thirds of the Christian world. Palestine, which was the home of Jesus Christ. Egypt, which was the, the birthplace of Christian monasticism. Asia Minor, where, where St. Paul started these first Christian communities. You know, in the days of Muhammad, what we call the Holy Land was thoroughly Christian. In fact, uh, the Middle East, it was the Middle East and not Europe that was the center of Christianity. It's hard to think about that today, but Jerusalem was, was more Christian than Rome. And when it all fell to Islam, uh, the Muslim empires were not satisfied. And they continued to press westward towards Constantinople, uh, the greatest Christian city in the world, and the best fortified. And they wound up bypassing that to enter Europe itself. So the point is that as far as unprovoked aggression goes, it was entirely on the Islamic side. At some point, Christendom had to defend itself or simply be subsumed by Islam. So that's the first myth, that, they were, that it was unprovoked aggression. Uh, the next is that uh, they, they weren't religious fanatics, but religious hypocrites. That they were crosses, but they really only cared about treasure and land and the acquisition of both. You know, their, their, their piety was just a cover for their greed. You know, historians used to believe that medieval Europe was suffering from uh, what has been called a crisis of success. You know, not that long ago, I took a certificate course in history that was taught by a professor who had been schooled in the California university system, who still maintained that it was a rise in the European population that led to a crisis of too many noble, uh, what they would call second sons or third sons. These young men who were trained in chivalry and in warfare, but had no wars to fight and no lands to inherit. And so the, the Pope cooked up the crusades uh, as a way to give a, a safety valve to send these warlike fellows off far away where they could uh, uh, be free to fight and kill and carve out land for themselves. But again, this is, historically, this is nonsense. And I must say, I'm weirdly proud of the fact that it was uh, medievalists who, ironically, were the first, uh, or among the first, anyway, to really utilize the internet by digitizing and sharing historical records that were, you know, previously inaccessible. You would have to fly someplace and, you know, put on cotton gloves and go into the, you know, because it was, it was too expensive to reproduce these things as books. But to do it digitally was cheap and effective. And then we have the advent of the computer database, which made comparisons of these various documents possible really for the first time. And it absolutely exploded this particular nonsense about about the, the crisis of success. We now know that it was the sitting lords and the first sons of the European nobility that answered the Pope's call in 1095 
as well as the later Crusades. And you also have to remember, there were no standing armies in medieval Europe. The nobility and the commoners were bound together by oaths and, you know, by, by the land itself. Maintaining an army was and is ridiculously expensive. <laughs> and more than one medieval lord actually bankrupted himself over his crusading. Many were forced to sell or mortgage their lands to gather the, the necessary funds. And they were also, they were not proto-colonialists. They had no desire to remain in the Holy Land after retaking Jerusalem. You know, actually, the, the crusading vow was just to pray at the Holy Sepulchre, which was impossible because it was a fortified city in the hands of the Muslims. So they had to retake it in order to fulfill that vow, go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to, to, to pray at the grave of our Lord, his empty tomb. Uh, but, you know, not unlike modern soldiers, those medieval crusaders were, you know, they were proud to go and do their duty, but they wanted nothing more than to get it over with and go home. And after really the spectacular success of the First Crusade, with Jerusalem and much of Palestine in Christian hands, what came to be known as the Crusader Kingdom, virtually all of the Crusaders did exactly that. They went home. Only a virtual handful remained behind to govern these newly won territories. Uh, the Crusades were also notoriously bad, plunder-wise. You know, I mean, maybe some Crusaders dreamt of wealthy and opulent eastern cities that were ripe for the picking, but virtually none of them ever even recouped their expenses. So the question then arises, why did they go? Why go on crusade in the first place? And it's because the Pope offered a plenary indulgence. They went to free the Holy Land and to atone for their sins and to win salvation by, you know, doing good works in a state of grace. In other words, they went to aid their Christian brothers and sisters in the East because they took seriously the words of Christ, greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And they endured ruinous expense and hardship because they took seriously the words of Christ, he that taketh not up his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. And they did not go in pursuit of worldly wealth, but to store up treasure in heaven, where neither the rust nor moth doth consume, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Okay, number three on the uh, hit parade here is when the Crusaders did capture J Jerusalem in 1099, they sacked the city. They, they massacred every man, woman, and child in the city until uh, the streets ran ankle-deep in blood. Okay, really. <laughs> well, first off, we should start with some context. The accepted moral standard in the medieval world was that a city that was besieged and resisted capture, that had to be taken by force after a long siege, belonged to the besiegers. Not just the buildings and the goods, but the people as well. And that is why every walled town, every castle had to wait carefully whether it could hold out against a siege or not, or whether it should negotiate terms of surrender. Because if you surrender, then there's also, you know, for Christians, there's all sorts of rules that had to be observed. All right. Now, in the case of Jerusalem, the defenders resisted right up to the end. They had even poisoned all of the wells outside the city when they heard the crusaders were coming. And they taunted them from the walls while they were out there, you know, dying of thirst and so forth. Uh, and they really reckoned that the walls of the city would keep the crusaders at bay until relief could arrive from Egypt. Well, as it turns out, they were wrong, and spectacularly so. 
And when the Crusaders uh, finally came through a breach in the wall, Jerusalem was put to sack and many were killed. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't every man, woman, and child. Many others were, were set free, some were ransomed, uh, and so on, which is typical in that kind of warfare. Now, by modern standards, that might seem brutal. But uh, on behalf of Christian chivalry, on behalf of medieval, medieval knighthood, uh, allow me to point out that far more innocent men, women, and children are killed by bombing in modern warfare than were ever put to the sword in the sack of a town. What we rather callously refer to as collateral damage is innocent lives. And that would have been, that would have been shocking to Knights of the Middle Ages. And it's also worth noting that, that in those Muslim cities that surrendered to the Crusaders, um, the people were left unmolested. They retained their property. They were allowed to worship their, you know, in their own religion. Also, uh, Godfrey de Bouillon, who was the leader of the First Crusade, strongly condemned the sacking of Jerusalem. He thought it marred an otherwise noble victory. And he was offered the kingship of Jerusalem. And he refused the title, although he remained as the defender of the Holy Sepulchre, because he said, and I quote, I will not wear a crown of gold in the city where my Savior wore a crown of thorns. Now, as for the streets running with blood, I mean, no historian accepts that as anything other than a, a literary convention. Uh, and this goes back to contemporary accounts by the likes of Jacques de Vitry, uh, who you know wrote about the the horrific sight of the sack of Jerusalem. And you know, it, it's it, he employed hyperbole to make the sack of Jerusalem fit into like a, a, a biblical proportion. But you know, really, then is now Jerusalem was a big town. The amount of blood necessary to fill the streets to a running depth of you know three or four inches would, you know, require more people in the, the, the blood of more people than lived in the whole region, let alone in the city. And, and I can recall reading another contemporary account where it said that the, the blood at the Temple Mount ran uh, all the way up to the horse's fetlocks, which is a, a depth of, you know, three or four feet. Obviously, this is, this is meant for uh, the readers back home to talk about how, you know, complete this victory was. Okay. So, were the Crusaders, uh, weren't they just colonists? Wasn't this just kind of medieval colonialism dressed up in religious hypocrisy? Uh, and of course, the answer to that is no. It's important to remember a little something about the Middle Ages. And first off, that the Western world was not the powerful, dominant culture that was venturing off into the, the some primitive or backward region in order to exploit the people and the, and the resources. You know, it was the Muslim East that was powerful and wealthy and, and sophisticated and opulent. Europe was the third world in those days. And that has a lot to do with uh, this charge of colonialism. And we're going to show why that doesn't fit when we return with lots more uh, no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And don't forget tomorrow, the pre-premiere of Understanding Divine Mercy at 12 o'clock this Thursday. Be right back. Stay with us.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need covenant eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to covenanteyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.covenanteyes.com code VMPR live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. The confusion stops here. I am your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about the Crusades today. And I want to give a shout-out to Thomas Madden. Uh, Dr. Madden, professor of history, has uh, written uh, some books on the Crusades. And this actually, this list of, uh, of objections is taken largely from a couple of interviews that he did with Zenit. Um, the Vatican News Service uh, a number of years ago. And I will put um, links to those original interviews uh, in the notes for the podcast when it goes up so that you can check out uh, the original for yourself. And of course, I'm supplementing this with my own research. I did a uh, DVD and uh, audio presentations on the crusade. I've been talking about it for many years. And, uh, but uh, he provided us with kind of a convenient list of objections that we're able to sort of knock down domino style here. And and what we're talking about before we took the break is the objection that the Crusades were actually a kind of medieval colonialism. And this is what happens when you try and distill history through the lens of modern consciousness. Like I said before the break, uh, in the Middle Ages, the West was not the powerful dominant culture. The empire builders uh, were the Muslim East. They were the ones who were going out and spreading uh, their culture 
and you know taking over other countries and so forth. Uh, the the Europeans that they represented the third world of that day, and the Crusader Kingdom that was founded in the wake of the First Crusade. You know, it wasn't a matter of uh, you know Catholic Europeans going to the Middle East to you know uh, mine the natural resources. You know, like like the British who came to North America. You know, they're chopping down trees and planting cash crops, cotton and tobacco and so forth. Um, it was not like that at all. In fact, in, in the Crusader Kingdom, the, the Catholic presence there was easily less than 10% of the population. And they were the, the rulers and the magistrates. They had merchants there. They were members of the military orders, which we might uh, talk about next week, you know, the, the hospitalers, the Templars. But the overwhelming majority of the population in the Crusader states was Muslim. You know, and there wasn't any real you know, effort to convert them into anything but Muslims. All they wanted to do was keep the holy places open for the pilgrims. So they weren't colonies, right, in the sense of plantations or even like factories, like in the case of India. They were, in fact, outposts. And the ultimate purpose of the Crusader Kingdom was to defend the holy places, uh, especially in Jerusalem, and provide a safe environment for Christian pilgrims to visit those places. You know, I, I take it as an example, the Third Crusade, which was led by Philip of France and the King of Austria and Famously, Richard I, a.k.a. Richard the Lionheart. It was the Muslims who gave him that nickname because unlike the other kings and sultans, he didn't, you know, lead from behind. Uh, you know, he didn't send his troops into battle with words of encouragement. He led them himself. And the man was virtually invincible. You know, he, he just he, he couldn't lose a battle. And so long before he got to Jerusalem, they negotiated a, a truce. It's just like, you tell, well, you know, just calm down and we will allow people to come back. We will allow Christians to come into the holy places. You know, we, we will open Jerusalem up. We'll open the Christian churches up back, back up to the Christians. And so you know, Richard the Lionheart didn't go to Jerusalem because he didn't have to. There's no point in conquering them if the whole point was just to get them to reopen the city to, to Christian pilgrims, which they agreed to do. And again, like I mentioned with the England and, and the, uh, the cash crops and so forth, there wasn't any mother country with whom the the Crusader states had some economic relationship, right? They weren't sending stuff home. And the Europeans didn't benefit economically from the Crusader states. You know, uh, quite the contrary. The expense um, of Crusades to maintain the Latinese was a serious drain on European resources. And so the, the Crusader kingdom really kept a military focus. And while the Muslims were busily fighting each other, and there was a great deal of infighting amongst the different uh, uh, Muslim groups, the Crusader states were relatively safe for about 80 years. But once the Muslims united under Saladin, uh, they were able to dismantle the strongholds and capture the cities. And by the year 1291, I mean, Jerusalem fell in 1187. By 1291, uh, the Christians had been kicked out of the Holy Land altogether. Uh, so hardly a, a colonialist enterprise. The next objection is that the Crusades were waged uh, not just against Muslims, but also against the Jews. And and that's nonsense. There was never any crusade called against the Jews. You know, um, during the preparation for the first crusade, there was what the historians call the People's Crusade, which was not a crusade at all, but just an unruly mob of commoners who descended on the towns of the Rhineland and decided to rob and kill the Jews that they found there, uh, which was just, I mean, it was greed in part, but it was also stemmed from the, the incorrect belief that the Jews— you know, were the ones that crucified Christ, and so they were legitimate targets for war. 
uh, Pope Urban II, the subsequent popes, vehemently condemned attacks on the Jews. Local bishops and other clergy did their best to defend them with you know limited success. Uh, later, when St. Bernard of Clairvaux preached the Second Crusade, there was a, a similar mob that, that assembled and killed uh, many Jews in Germany. And St. Bernard himself went catch up with them and personally put a stop to it. Okay. Now, these are tragic events in our history, and they are an unfortunate uh, byproduct of the crusade enthusiasm, but they were not the purpose of the crusades. You know, and it all happened at home. They didn't even go to the Holy Land to make these attacks. And so to use, to use a, a modern analogy, uh, uh, during the Second World War, there were American soldiers that committed crimes overseas, and they were arrested and they were punished. But it was, it was never the purpose of American involvement in the Second World War to commit crimes. Okay. Also, you know, we know in just war theory, um, unjust actions during a war don't, you know, uh, negate the, the justice of the war in the first place. The next one is that the tension between the post-Christian West and the Muslim world is a reaction to the Crusades. In other words, that, that modern terrorism is just a direct response to the Crusades. I remember uh, Bill Clinton coming out and saying as much, uh, you know, after 9-11. And, you know, there are various Muslim leaders today who refer to the Americans as the Crusaders and so on. But I can tell you that's just rhetoric. There's no historical link between the holy wars of the Middle Ages and modern Muslim aggression. And, you know, it's important to remember, all the way up to the 16th century, the superpower of, you know, this part of the world, the Western world, was Islam. It was Muslim civilizations that were wealthy and sophisticated and immensely powerful. Empires. And the West was, you know, in comparison, poor and, and comparatively weak. And it's also worth pointing out, with the exception of the First Crusade, virtually every other crusade launched by the West was a failure. Now, the Crusades were important because they slowed down Muslim expansionism, but they didn't stop it by any stretch of the imagination. Muslim empires continued to expand into Christian territories. They conquered the Balkans, much of Eastern Europe, right? Think of all, all those countries that, whose names end with Stan, okay? Uh, ultimately, Muslims even took Constantinople, which was the greatest and most fortified Christian city in the world. So from the Muslim perspective, the Crusades were insignificant and frankly inconsequential. Uh, and I'll quote Professor Madden here. He said, if you asked somebody in the Muslim world about the Crusades in the 18th century, he would have known nothing about them. They were important to Europeans because they were massive efforts that failed. However, during the 19th century, when Europeans began conquering and colonizing Middle Eastern countries, many historians began to cast the Crusades as Europe's first attempt to bring the fruits of Western civilization to the backward Muslim world world. So in other words, it was Western secular revisionist history that portrayed the Crusades as this imp these imperialist wars. And unfortunately, that distortion of history was taught in the colonial schools and became the accepted view in the Middle East and beyond. So when imperialism was discredited in the 20th century, our modern Islamists seized on this manufacture, this false image of the Crusades, in order to blame the West for all of their problems, 
right? Because they've been preying on the poor Muslims ever since the Crusades. And, you know, that also then puts the, the religious aspect to it. Now, this next one, I mean, this is real Catholic kryptonite, because this is, you know, how do you answer this? How are the Crusades, they're holy wars. How is that different from jihad or any other war of religion? Well, there is a big difference. You know, for a Muslim, the world is divided into two abodes, right? There's the Dar al-Islam and the Dar al-Harb, the abode of Islam and the abode of war. So jihad is expansionist. It's, it, jihad is a war to conquer non-Muslims and put them under Muslim rule. And then the conquered are given a simple choice. For those who are not people of the book, that is, people who are not Christians or Jews, the choice is convert to Islam or die. And for those who are people of the book, the choice is submit to Muslim rule and Islamic law or die. So the expansion of Islam was directly linked to the military successes of jihad. And the Crusades were completely different. First off, from the very beginning, the Catholic Church forbade forced conversions as antithetical to Christianity. Unlike jihad, the purpose of the Crusades was not to expand Christian territory or, or to expand you know, the numbers of Christians through forced conversions. On the contrary, the Crusades were a direct response to centuries of Muslim conquests of Christian lands. And frankly, that, that response almost came too late. The event that sparked the First Crusade was the conquest of all of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, by the Seljuk Turks in the 1070s through the 1090s. And then that First Crusade was called by Pope Urban II in 1095 in response to an urgent plea from the Byzantine Emperor, Emperor Alexius, in Constantinople. And so Urban called for the Knights of Christendom to come to the aid of their brother Christians in the East. And remember, Asia Minor was Christian. Antioch, whose first bishop was St. Peter. Ephesus, to whom St. Paul addressed one of his epistles. Nicaea, where, where the creed of the church was written. All of these cities were in Asia Minor. And the Byzantine emperor begged the Christians of the West for help, and the Crusades were the result. But their purpose was not to, to take back Asia Minor, but to capture Jerusalem and make it safe for Christian pilgrims. So in a nutshell, the major difference is the Crusades were defense against Muslim aggression. Okay, a little bit more to go. Hang on with us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. We got Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest. I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, you that's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this. I just want to call all the people, you know, I've got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta, we have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 
30 years old, 29 years old, five kids, and I thank you guys. But everybody else, man, get on fire. Fight for the truth, man. I know what I'm telling you guys. There's I no love it. Out there. Sirach 1124 says, Do not say I am self-sufficient. What harm can come to me now? According to St. Catherine of Siena, presumption is like vermin burrowing at the root of the tree of our soul. If we do not uproot it with great care and humility, it will eventually destroy the soul. May God keep us from all presumption of mind and heart and realize that we depend on Him for everything. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us. Talking about the Crusades and a final word here. The Crusaders did not set out to convert the Muslim world. Our own Dr. Ed Mazza did his doctoral thesis on St. Raymond of Penafort, who was among the, uh, the medieval uh, theologians who tried to dialogue with the Muslims. Uh, he was, I think he was a, a Dominican, one of the Mendicant orders. And he really helped to set the tone for modern religious tolerance. Uh, Dr. Ed's thesis became the book called, uh, from Angelico Press. It's called The Scholastics and the Jews, Coexistence, Conversion, and the Medieval Origins of tolerance. Yeah, you don't really uh, associate religious tolerance with the Middle Ages, but that's in fact where it came from. Now, their efforts at converting the Muslims was not a success, I think, largely due to the fact that uh, under Islamic law, then as now, a Muslim who converts to another religion faces the death penalty. Uh, but this was altogether separate from the Crusades. And in, in a sense, I think they were following in the footsteps of St. Francis Assisi himself, who, contrary to his... Uh, popular image as a a pacifist and a plaster bird feeder actually was a vigorous defender of the justice of the Crusades. He said the Crusades were just so long as the Muslims refused to accept Christ and held on to Christian lands that they had taken unjustly by force. And risking torture and death, and this, again, Jacques de Vitry was a contemporary chronicler who uh, wrote about St. Francis's episode in Egypt, we're going to talk about in a second, within, you know, five or six years after it happened, back in 1219. Um, Anyway, St. Francis went uh, with some companions uh, to Egypt, and in the city of Damietta, he crossed enemy lines and was received by the sultan of Egypt, Malek el-Khamel, the nephew of the great Saladin. And Francis, he had a—this is is Francis, St. Francis' idea of ecumenism. He says, let's build a big bonfire— and I'll go in, and you, you can send your imams in, and we'll see 
which of us God chooses to protect. Okay, not surprisingly, the, uh, the Muslim scholars didn't want to have anything to do with this. So Francis then proposes to go into the fire alone, but under the condition that if he emerged unharmed, then the sultan, you know, would accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. Now, when the sultan said no thanks, Francis said, according to Jacques Vitry, he said, and I quote, if you do not wish to believe, we will commend your soul to God. Because we declare that if you die while holding your law, you will be lost. God will not accept your soul. That was not very ecumenical, was it? But neither was the sultan. You know, he, he argued that the crusaders weren't true followers of Christ because Christ said to turn the other cheek. And then Francis responded by quoting um, our Lord's own words taken from the very same discourse in Matthew chapter 5. If their right eye scandalize thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And St. Francis explained, he said, here, Jesus wanted to teach us that every man, however dear and close he is to us, even if he is as precious to us as the apple of our own eye, he must be repulsed, pulled out, expelled, if he seeks to turn us aside from the faith and love of our God. And that's why it is just that Christians invade the land you inhabit, for you blaspheme the name of Christ and alienate everyone you can from his worship. So St. Francis's dialogue with the Sultan was one of conversion to Jesus Christ. And Malik el-Kamel was so impressed that he allowed Francis and his companions to preach the gospel in Egypt. And he even asked St. Francis to pray for him. He said, pray for me that God will deign to reveal to me the law and faith which is most pleasing to him. So St. Francis's attempt at accord with the Muslim world would actually have some far-reaching consequences because after the Crusader kingdom fell, it was the Franciscans, of all the Catholics, of all the religious orders, it was the Franciscans who were allowed to stay uh, uh, in the Holy Land as the custodians of the holy places. And that's no nonsense. Now, after the fall of Jerusalem in 1187, there was, as I said before, never another successful bid to retake the Holy City. Uh, the Second Crusade was preached uh, by Bernard of Clairvaux at the behest of Pope Eugenius III. And when the Second Crusade uh, was a failure, a lot of people blamed Bernard of Clairvaux. And he ultimately, you know, was compelled to defend himself. He explained the failure of that crusade. Well, he explained it the same way that Christians would explain the failure of the subsequent crusades, which is the same way that the Jews of the Old Testament understood their various defeats. God withheld victory from his people because of their sins. And that actually led to a large-scale piety movement in Europe. And I can tell you that the 13th century became probably the most glorious hundred years in human history in terms of, of real social advancement. Now, someone might ask, well, based on what you said about the Crusades, why did St. John Paul II apologize for them and even, even condemn the Crusades? Well, actually, the answer to this one is easy. St. John Paul II did no such thing. You know, if you'd been paying attention back during the, the preparation for the Great Jubilee year in the year 2000, you would know that St. John Paul II asked for forgiveness from everyone who who Christians had unjustly harmed throughout the first two millennia. So for the last 2,000 years, I'd just allow me to say, anybody that's ever been hurt by a Christian, I'm sorry. And the funny thing is that he was roundly criticized precisely for not apologizing for the Crusades specifically. 
St. John Paul II apologized for the sins of Catholics. He did not apologize for the Crusades, and he did not condemn them. Now, it was also widely reported that uh, St. John Paul apologized to the Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople for the sack of Constantinople back in 1204. Uh, that was a, a tragic incident where crusaders actually uh, sacked a Christian city. But uh, St. John Paul II, uh, you know, actually, he, he didn't apologize. He just reiterated what his predecessor, Pope Innocent III, said back in the 13th century, that it was a tragic event, which Pope Innocent did everything in his power to avoid. And what you can say is that St. John Paul II apologized for all the historical sins of Catholics, and that would include those who took part in the sack of Constantinople or, or other atrocities of the Crusades. You know, after all, in the words of Shakespeare's Henry V, no king ever went to war with all unspotted soldiers. But St. Uh, John Paul did not apologize for the Crusades, and he did not even apologize for the outcome of the Crusades. All right, having said everything that we've said, uh, in closing, we can make several conclusions about the Crusades. Number one, the Crusades were a defensive gesture. Christians were clearly justified in defending themselves against Muslim aggression. Number two, it was also fitting for Christians to try and regain the Holy Land, which the Muslims had taken by force from Christian hands. Number three, at no point did the Crusaders ever try to forcibly convert the Muslims, nor did they ever attack uh, the Muslim homeland of Arabia. They only ever tried to retake formerly Christian places that had been unjustly seized by the Muslims. Number four, it was and is justifiable for Christians to defend not only themselves, but the innocent and the helpless, which is precisely what the Crusaders were doing. And then point number five, lastly, there were certainly abuses during the Crusades, but Catholic just war theory tells us that an immoral action during a war does not diminish the justice of the cause of the war. So immoral actions should be condemned, the way uh, Godfrey of Bouillon condemned the sack of Jerusalem, or the way the Pope Innocent III condemned the sack of Constantinople. But the war itself remains just. In the final analysis, um, it emerges as an incontrovertible fact of history that for all of their faults and their failures, the Crusades saved Christendom and really Western civilization itself from certain extinction. I'm going to give a final word to Father John Harden. He wrote, and I quote, It is sad that sometimes God must permit tragedies to unite Christians in love and common purpose. God does not always grant victory in the way man desires, but God always answers prayers which have a noble intent. God protected his church through the sacrifices of his people, for the faith was more strongly instilled in their hearts. At the time of the Crusades, common Christians saw in the movement a challenge to devote themselves and all their property to the cause of Christ. In sacrificing for Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Jerusalem, they were sacrificing themselves for Jesus. And that's no nonsense. Okay, that's been our no-nonsense look at the Crusades. You know, if you're interested in more, um, Professor Madden has a great book called The Concise History of the Crusades. 
you might be interested in reading Dr. Ed's book, The Scholastics and the Jews. Um, I also did the DVD, uh, Fire and Sword, The Crusades for St. Joseph Communications, and an audio series, Fire and Sword, um, Crusades, Inquisition, and Reformation that covers these major parts of history. And next week, we're going to actually tackle a um, connected topic, which is the Knights Templars, something else that is a you know, piece of Catholic history that has been turned into Catholic kryptonite. So I think that'll be worthwhile. I hope you will be able to join me for that. Also, tomorrow, Thursday, uh, the 21st of May at 12 p.m. Pacific time, we're going to have the what I've been calling the pre-premiere, uh, the blessing of understanding divine mercy. That's the new show that I'm doing with Father Chris Alar of the Missionaries of the Immaculate Conception. We're going to have a show every week on Thursdays at noon, and of course it'll be on the podcast and YouTube and all that, um, so you can look at it on demand. But we'll be live every Thursday at noon and talking about the divine mercy. And I think uh, at this time, it's really, really relevant to people's lives. I think that the work that they're doing is really astounding. And I think it's really astounding what Father Chris proposed, which is that tomorrow they're going to have a chaplet of divine mercy that they will pray at the National Shrine in Stockton, and they're going to have benediction with the Blessed Sacrament. And Father Alar is going to ask for God's blessing on our um, on new enterprise here, Understanding Divine Mercy. And uh, it's all going to be um, on, on YouTube and on the app and on the, the website. You just go tomorrow at noon to you know, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, however you listen or watch, and you will be able to experience that. And all of that in preparation for next week a week from Thursday at noon Pacific time when we're going to launch the very first episode of Understanding Divine Mercy with yours truly and Father Chris Alar. And I sure hope that you can join us for that. Um, and a final word, I just want to say thank you for everybody that's listening. I want to say thank you, Vice, for I've been watching the numbers of the show and uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I can see that people are embracing it. I think our numbers have kind of doubled pretty much every week since we've been on. It's been about six weeks now that we've had the new show in this time slot. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your kind words. Thank you especially for your prayers and also for your financial support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Can't do it without you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.